What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, episode 22. Today, we're going to do an episode of modern sci-fi films, specifically non-mega sci-fi franchises, so like nothing to do with Star Wars, nothing with the MCU. Um, The films that we've chosen for this episode are Ex Machina, Edge of Tomorrow, and Blade Runner 2049. These are three of my favorite sci-fi movies in the last 10 years, and it's a great list to talk about. They're all incredibly unique films. Yes, Blade Runner 2049 is a sequel, but it's just as good, possibly better than the previous than its predecessor. So we don't really count that as like a franchise movie. Yeah, and it's pretty much its own movie separate from the first film. There are connections for sure, but it feels like its own thing. Exactly. So I think it's okay to put it on this list. Yeah. And also, I think it's an absolute masterpiece, so we got to talk about it. We got to talk about got it. That's too. If you enjoy our podcast and want to help support us, the best thing that you can do is share our podcast, either the YouTube version, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, we're on Amazon Podcasts now, everywhere you want to listen to podcasts, that's where you can find us. We're growing mostly from word of mouth, so let your friends and family know about us. We know you got some movie friends out there. Share our show with them. We know they'll love it just as much as you do. We also have a Patreon now. You can check that out and support us there for for exclusive content that only patrons will receive. And leaving a five-star review is super beneficial to us, helps us get seen, helps us compete with other highly funded podcasts out there. We're getting up there, man. So hit the notification bell, leave a comment. And those of you who follow us on TikTok, in light of the president's ban and supposed ban on TikTok, please go subscribe to Rares of the Lost podcast on YouTube. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us, Rares of the Lost podcast. If TikTok does eventually come to an end, that is the best place to find us, all those areas. Hit that subscribe button, guys, and hit that notification button. Let's get going. Even if TikTok dies, we will not stop making content. No way. All right, let's get started. As always, spoilers are abound. Let's start with Ex Machina, written and directed by Alex Garland in 2014. This was an early film from the independent production company A24, which has produced several other exceptional films like Enemy, Under the Skin, Room, The um, Witch, Moonlight, Hereditary, Midsommar, just to name a few. So, so A24 is great. They're kind of like the Blumhouse of independent cinema where they make these low-budget films, but they all make money and they're all fantastic. Yeah, Ex Machina I think had a budget of like fifteen million dollars, gross close to forty million, which is a yeah. profitable film. Mm-hmm. And Ex Machina is about a young programmer who is selected to participate in a groundbreaking experiment in synthetic intelligence by evaluating the human qualities of a highly advanced humanoid AI. And it, like a lot of sci-fi movies and a, a few that we're talking about today, this film addresses the the themes of of humanity and what it is to be what it is to be a human, what it is to have a soul, and also the idea of God. And it juggles these themes in a brilliant way. And this is director Alex Garland's directorial debut. And you can argue it's one of the best debuts you'll ever see from a director. And before, Garland was a, is a novelist and screenwriter. He's having previously written the novels The Beach, The Tra- Tesseract, which have both been turned into movies. He wrote the screenplay for 28 Days Later, Sunshine, Never Let Me Go, and Dread, which is an epic movie. Yeah, a great writer, and obviously he, he takes advantage of the sci-fi genre and is a brilliant voice in that. And he also, since Ex Machina, has written and directed Annihilation and wrote a script for Halo, which will probably never get produced. Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> Does anyone even care about Halo anymore? I would love to see a Halo movie, dude. I would love that. I would see. The, I would pay $50 to see a Halo movie. I wouldn't pay 50 I'd pay 16 <laughs> <laughs> well, Arclight's 17 and change, so. Um, Ex Machina was nominated for Best Screenplay at the Academy Awards. 
It also won the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. It beat out Star Wars: The Force Awakens. Did it really? Yeah. Oh wow! Isn't that crazy? That's amazing. It on a budget of fifteen million. That's pretty nuts. <laughs> I'm pretty sure J.J. Abrams was like, "What the fuck?" That, that's what I think is so important about sci-fi in the genres. You don't need a giant budget. You don't have to have spaceships and aliens. You don't have to have three hundred million dollars. You can make a highly original piece of science fiction with just a great idea, great writing, and simple effects. This is a testament to that. Yeah, absolutely. Ex Machina stars Domino Gleason as Caleb, Oscar Isaac as Nathan, and Alicia Vikander as Ava. This is a very small cast, and for me, it gives the film a very romantic feeling and very intimate feeling. This cast is great, and Alex Garland got three of the, the best up-and-coming actors around, because I think this came out, what, 2016? 2014. 2014, so it was, it was a few years ago, and all of these actors were still kind of unknown to general audiences. But we were fans of them um, from their previous work. And this movie works because it's so small in scope physically, but the scope of ideas and themes are huge. Yeah, this film is, again, highly original, wickedly smart, and it's really just one hell of a ride. It's very thrilling. There are parts where you're actually terrified even, and you're just feeling a lot of different emotions. And I, I really love this movie. I've seen it a handful of times, and every time I watch it, I get something new out of it. And what's really cool about this is... It seems like it's a technology that could be invented today. For example, if, say, Apple or Google suddenly announced that they created an AI humanoid robot, we would all be like, oh, my God, that's crazy. But we'd also be like, it's not really that crazy. I mean, yeah, of I'm course not, they did. I'm not surprised by that. So it, feel, it feels like it's a, something that could be a, a reality tomorrow. Yeah. Not just like 30 years from now, but like tomorrow. It is going to be a reality at some point. Yeah. You want to get into the characters? Yeah, let's go into it. Let's start with Caleb, played by Domino Gleason, who, again, is Brendan Gleason's son. He is a computer programmer who works at Nathan's company, Blue Book, and Blue Book is basically like the fictional version of Google, today's mm -hmm. Google. And Caleb's a moderately bright guy. He seems like he could really be anyone. Nathan leads on to Caleb that he's smarter than he actually is, but really, eventually, I mean, he calls him one of their best programmers, but eventually throughout the movie, you find out that he's just mediocre at best, nothing special. Yeah, the thing with Caleb is... He is naive, and he's easily manipulated, and we find out through the film that he's actually been manipulated by both of the other characters. Is, but Caleb is important for the story because he is the surrogate audience. We see the story through his eyes at first, which is important because he helps us learn what the, what the setup is, who the characters are, what the world is. So we need to follow Caleb because he's an outsider to the story. And yes, like you said, Caleb's naive. He also seems like he's just a good guy. He seems like a normal dude. We learn of the accident he had as a child, which led to his computer programming skills and which led to his career at Blue Book. So as, as I said before, one of the main themes of this movie is man's connection to God and the idea of God. And for me, Caleb views Nathan as a God. He looks up to him as a hero, but also when he learns about what Nathan has created. So let's move on to Nathan. Nathan is the genius, reclusive CEO of Blue Book, which is, again is basically Google, where Caleb works. And... The way these two meet is Nathan specifically chooses Caleb, he thinks it's a, a chance drawing, to be a part of the, his Turing test for the creation of his artificial intelligence, Ava. And I really love Garland and Oscar Isaac's take on Nathan, this take on this tech genius. Mm. He's kind of like a bro. The first line of dialogue that Nathan says is, dude, dude, dude. 
He's like lifting weights and constantly drinking vodka. And he has a shaved head. He's got this big grizzly beard, sleeveless shirt. He doesn't look or act like you would expect a tech genius to look. He doesn't look like Zuckerberg or any of these other guys, yeah, which I love. Especially with the buildup because we see that he is a reclusive genius who lives so far from any other humans that you would expect him to be a strange, antisocial, weird guy who's just so brilliant. He Like Elon Musk, he's kind of he's socially awkward. But we find out that he's actually very personable, very charismatic, very funny, but he also has a lot of flaws. He's a raging alcoholic, and actually his his drinking is actually a correlation to um, one of the main I, one of the main inspirations for this film. Same thing as the lighthouse, where this film was partly inspired by the Greek myth of Prometheus, who stole fire from the gods, and he was punished by having his his liver eaten by birds every morning. So Nathan is punished by drinking heavily every night which is damaging his liver so it's a connection to that greek myth which is pretty fascinating like you said nathan has basically become a god in his eyes at least he has because he has created life he also ends life at will and i think this self-indulgence into his own hubris causes him to be ignorant of the final programming of ava which eventually leads to his downfall and i think his godlike status is why nathan drinks so much he drinks to cope with what he's done in terms of constantly creating and destroying life. Um, throughout the entire movie, the first two acts, Nathan's either drinking or hungover or drunk whenever he's interacting with Caleb, almost always. And is that his way to cope with what he's done? Is that his way to communicate with Caleb? Maybe that's the only way he can interact with other human beings now because he's he's so far advanced mentally and intellectually that he, he has to bring himself down to co- communicate with them. And what's interesting is Caleb doesn't even factor in this flawed nature to, to Nathan's character because the first time they meet, Nathan tells him that he has a raging hangover because he was drinking all night. And then and then Caleb asks, oh, how was the party? And Nathan's like, what party? Yeah. <laughs> so he's like, doesn't realize like he's an alcoholic who just drinks himself into oblivion every night, which is a, a serious uh, men- mental problem. And I think if you compare him to a god, it's almost like the humanoids that he creates, the AIs that he creates are mankind. They're a different type of being than him, better and worse in different ways. And Nathan surrounds himself with nature, totally secluded. Does that represent the Garden of Eden? Is Ava Eve? The name's pretty close. Is Ava's act of eventually, spoiler alert, killing Nathan and leaving Caleb for dead a form of eating the forbidden fruit, allowing her to escape or forcing her to leave, which is then why she leaves the compound? Is she banished? Like, is that her way of being banished like Eden? I think I think setting the compound surrounded by nature shows the two two facets of creation where there's nature, creation by nature, and then now there's creation artificially. So you have this artificial compound within the wilderness. And I also think that Nathan is partly inspired by Jackson Pollock because there's that Jackson Pollock painting in Caleb's room. It's called painting number five. For that painting, it was actually damaged after after it was finished. So Jackson Pollock had to re- redo it and rework it and tinker with it to make a perfect version of it, which is the same way that Nathan is the same approach that Nathan is taking to to creating the AI, where he's creating these different versions and moving on and re- redoing it and, and improving on it to make it perfect. And also Jackson Pollock was a, a serious alcoholic, just like Nathan. And also in terms of Jackson Pollock, he was an automatic painter, so he painted without thinking. He just splattered and whatever happened, happened. So he did it. It's, it's subconscious art. It's called automatic art. 
Ava does the same thing where some of her drawings are the same kind of idea of automatic subconscious art. And so you can see the contrast between a human's automatic art and then uh, an android's automatic art. And so she ha that this is the first evidence and first sign that there is some kind of consciousness within her. And also this compulsion of constantly replacing things, replacing technology, finding better examples of something. And does the alcohol help him, help him come to peace with the fact that he's created the next evolution of life, which will take over the human race? And I, I don't think the drinking is like an act. I, I know some people have a theory that it's an act to trick Caleb the whole time because he's genu genuinely surprised when he finds out that Caleb changed the passcodes on the doors yeah, towards the end of the movie. So I don't agree with that I don't think all. it's an act at all, which I, I've read a bunch of theories on. But I think it's just a serious character flaw he has. Yeah, I think, it's, again, it's a coping mechanism for what he's done. Caleb, when he gets there, he thinks he's his friend. And then, as we learn throughout the film, Nathan has been manipulating Caleb the entire time, and the whole thing has been a setup and the Turing test is not actually the real Turing test that Caleb thinks is going on, which we'll get into in a bit. Yeah. Now, Ava, Ava is the humanoid, and she's a complete mystery to the audience, really. At first, she seems very sweet and innocent. She's kind, inquisitive, intelligent, and beautiful. And she has this like very cute fairy tale, fairy tale theme music, like whenever she's on yeah. camera in the beginning of the movie. It's, it's very sweet. And she's basically better than humans in almost every single way, besides biological birth. And the audience thinks that she's genuinely interested in Caleb, genuinely likes Caleb. And then you begin to understand and believe that Ava is being trapped against her will, that Nathan can't be trusted. And Caleb falls for Ava quickly and helps her with her plan to trick Nathan to get Ava out of her habitat. Yes, yeah, so what happens is Nathan doesn't understand what he created. He thinks that it's just like another version that it's not quite perfect, I'm just going to do what I can with this version, upload its its memory bank, and then make a new version. So, But he doesn't understand the true intelligence of Ava, and that it, it, then it, it can show that maybe creating the AI was actually an accident because Nathan doesn't even recognize it. And then we learn that a Nathan thinks that he's in control of Ava, but what's really happening is Ava is in control of everything, and she's manipulating both of them to get her way. And her main, her goal is to escape the compound. Yeah, he's ignorant about the coding, which his coding for Ava is to escape the box, yeah. leave, escape. And that's what she does. Exactly. And she has this brilliant plan of how she manipulates Caleb. And at first she shows, she, they interact and it seems like, okay, she's, she seems like a cool robot, but is, does she really have consciousness? The main ways that she manipulates Caleb are, she shows him the portrait that she drew of his face in order to, to build an emotional connection to him. Tells Caleb that she has romantic feelings for him and wants to be intimate with him. She tells Caleb that Nathan can't be trusted, which builds trust between them. This manipulation eventually leads to Caleb helping her escape. And it's an amazing moment when she does finally escape, and then she locks Caleb in the compound, and he's just screaming and pounding on the glass door, and she doesn't even care about him because... He, he was just a, a pawn in her, in her scheme to get out. The way that Ava was designed is based upon Caleb's pornography search engine history. So Nathan designed Ava to look a certain way for Caleb to be attracted to her. And it's been, that's an important aspect to the entire test because the attraction element is what p helps pull Caleb into developing an emotional feelings for her to promote the film. Producers created fake Tinder accounts 
for Ava in major cities across America. And they used Alicia Vikander's real photos for the profiles. And in the bio, the interest for Ava said, I like drawing and crowded intersections with people. So it was a brilliant way to market the movie. And just to talk about the Turing test real quick, we eventually find out that's the real reason why Caleb's there to begin with, to help Nathan run a Turing test on this new humanoid. For those of you who don't know, the Turing test was developed by computer scientist and mathematician Alan Turing. It is a test of a machine's ability to exhibit intelligent behavior, equivalent to or indistinguishable from a human. And again, for those of you who don't know, Alan Turing was basically invented the first computer, but was virtually shunned from history and has been shunned from history Due to his homosexuality, which was illegal in England at the time, which led to an early death by suicide after years of prosecution and forced home run therapy, one of the greatest minds to ever exist died by suicide at age 41. And it's uh, laid out in that great film, The Imitation Game. Yeah, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, so definitely check that movie out if you haven't seen it. It's really good. And the unique thing about this Turing test is Caleb points out to Nathan that he knows Ava is an AI, but Nathan is so confident that Ava will pass, and is so curious, that's why he wants Caleb to do it. And to create Ava, I think you said before, Nathan reveals that he harvested personal information from billions of Blue Book users using their search queries as indicators of human thought. He hacked billions of cell phones for recording of people's expressions and body language, so Ava's behavior would be more realistic. And also, Caleb thinks that they're doing a traditional Turing test, but in fact, and it's, and it's revealed later by Nathan, that that was just a, a draw to get bring, to bring Caleb into the situation because he reveals that the real Turing test was to see if Ava could manipulate Caleb, which she successfully does. Because with the Turing test, it's just a, a, a series of questions and emotional responses. Nathan felt that the AI couldn't really prove its consciousness through that traditional test. But if she was able to use improvisation, imagination, um, emotional um, manipulation, then that would seriously prove that she was actually conscious. And I think Garland does such a great job. I just want to go back a little bit. Hiding you from the rest of the world. You never really see other people besides the lead characters. The film opens with Alex at his trendy office, but it's mostly just shots of him, close-ups and stuff. And then before you know it, you're on a helicopter getting dropped off in the middle of the woods, in the middle of nowhere. And Garland makes you feel just as isolated as Alex being quickly thrown into this new environment. And then eventually this new bunker laboratory that looks more like a tomb, which eventually will be a tomb for him. And I feel like Garland sort of teases the audience with foreshadowing of Caleb's eventual entrapment in the underground fortress and laboratory when he's in his room and he notices it has no windows. The only way to open doors is with that special key card. And as soon as you see that key card and you see where it works and where it doesn't work, you think at some point in this movie, that key card is going to be the end of Caleb and or the end of Nathan. It's going to doom somebody's fate. Mm-hmm. And already you feel trapped like Caleb must feel, sort of like a hamster in a maze. And then this is also where Nathan shows his godlike powers over a normal human being like Caleb where he can control his entire life. Mm-hmm. And I think the ultimate downfall of of Nathan is that this idea that he thinks he can control this technology. And so I think the, one of the main comments on the film is that if, it, if something like an AI is created, we will never be able to control it and we will never be able to understand it fully. We have such profound intelligence compared to human beings where we will be considered obsolete. And these humans end up being obsolete to Ava. Yeah, and so the way Ava gets out of her box and the way she escapes the film in the story 
is she forces power outages where during these outages she thinks she's communicating with Caleb, just the two of them. Um, and throughout this, they plan an escape where Caleb changes the passcodes for the doors while Nathan is blackout drunk. But what they also don't know is that Nathan was recording these with a separate camera with the uh, our with ha- which had another power source. So he finally he knows the plan the entire time. And then, but he doesn't understand what Caleb has done in terms of changing the passcodes. And Caleb doesn't understand what he's actually done by releasing this AI into the world. And then Nathan confronts Ava and also Kyoko, one of the other humanoid robots that he created for his personal uses. And this is in the hallway scene, and it's the death scene of Nathan. And it's very, very intriguing and also terrifying at the same time because the way that they stab Caleb the looks on their faces, it's almost like the same way that Nathan creates them or programs them. Like this this look of curiosity, like what happens if I do this? What happens if I put this here? It's kind of like they don't understand exactly what they're doing. They're just more curious than anything about what's going to happen. We ultimately see that Ava, yes, she has emotions, but I don't think she even cares at all about humanity eventually, and which is why she she's so quick to kill Nathan. And then why she's why she's able to like, trap Caleb without a without a problem at all, I think that ultimately we're shown that this AI believes it to be so superior to humankind that it's like it, humans are like like animals compared to it. To it. You yeah, know what it's I mean? the overall theme of replacement and yeah. evolution. She's the new form of evolved life. Mm. She's the new superior being, so she exterminates them. Yeah, and then also there's this great comparison where Ava was based off of uh, Alice from Alice in Wonderland where she gets she's trapped in this world and the other characters are looking at her through the looking glass and then she finally escapes through the looking glass and enters the real the real realm of of human of humanity. Yeah, and just to bounce off that with with again that with the theme of replacement is the like you said earlier the whole movie starts from Caleb's perspective coming into this world. He's the main protagonist at first. And then the final sequence is when Ava finally escapes. It becomes her perspective, her movie. We're no longer following Caleb after she leaves him down in the bunker. And instead, we're following Ava. And the robot has replaced the human as the protagonist of the film. And she enters the real world. Mm -hmm. One of the craziest scenes in this film is Nathan's dance routine with Kyoko. That's so fun. (laughs) Because when it starts out, and they have this really unique and, and difficult choreographed dance, which they're doing in sync perfectly... And it's just like fascinating character trait where we're like, this guy has been on his own for so long, and this is how he's begun entertaining himself. And we can see that he's he's beginning to fall into madness where he's he's spending so much time creating a perfectly choreographed dance. It's like he's mentally losing control of himself and his grip on reality. Yeah, exactly. And to create the the effect of Ava's humanoid body to get back into the practical effects where, again, this budget was only $15 million, so they don't have a ton of CGI to work with and they don't have a ton of, a huge budget for graphics. Garland used the combination of practical effects and CGI to develop Ava's character where Alicia Vikander wore a gray suit, which is basically the fabric material of the final uh, evolution of the character of Ava, combined, and then he combined that with CGI to create like all the robotic components and everything. And it's, it's just a mix of real capture and CGI, which was super effective. And it's simple, but it's obviously led to the film being so unique and good. I think one of the main themes that ends up coming out of this film is the idea of humanity killing God. And how modern, modern generations have become less religious. 
and God is less of a part of people's lives than more now, more so now than ever before. And so what happens is that's correlated in the film where Nathan is a God to Caleb at first, and then Caleb eventually turns on God, influenced by technology and the artificiality of man's creations in the modern world. He turns on God and ends up causing God's death and destruction. So it's, it's kind of a, a fun play on the fact that many people in modern society have turned on any kind of God and any kind of religion. Sounds like the Garden of Eden and the Forbidden Fruit to me, Playa. Yeah, man. I think it's a great metaphor. Oscar Isaac based his performance and especially the beard and look for Nathan on Stanley Kubrick. Oh, no way. Yeah, his, his grizzly beard. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> Getting back to the idea of God, this story takes place across seven days. So it's the seven days to prove the creation of, of artificial intelligence. And that's a direct metaphor to the seven days that God used to create the world. Garden of Eden, man. I'm so right. <laughs> <laughs> forbidden fruit. Ava and the technology of the forbidden fruit. Yeah. And uh, Caleb took a bite of it. So, this, yeah, this movie has very deep themes, um, very interesting themes to talk about and ideas. And it's done in a, in a unique way and a profound way. Yeah, it's, it's very sharply directed. It's almost like Fincher-esque, very technical. Uh, it's precise uh, stylish and the acting is phenomenal. The writing's phenomenal. It's just overall one of the best science fiction films you'll you'll watch in the last twenty years, easily. Agreed. Moving on. Let's move on, man. Let's move on to Edge of Tomorrow, directed by Doug Lyman in 2014, starring Tom Cruise as Cage and Emily Blunt as Rita. This movie is flat out fucking awesome. This movie's a great time. Every time I watch it, it's fun. It's 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 hilarious. It's exciting. The action's great, and the actors are great. It's a perfect like summer blockbuster movie. It's about a soldier fighting aliens gets to relive the same day over and over again. The same day restarting every time he dies. Based off a popular 2004 Japanese light novel called All You Need Is Kill by Hiroshi Zakasaraka. I think I got that right. Sounds good. And uh, when, Hiroshi, when Hiroshi wrote the novel, he was inspired from playing video games when he was a kid. You know, like, not ones currently where you can save your status, but video games you used to not be able to save your place. So you had to develop, like, the perfect, exact, precise techniques to beat levels and to level up and to not die. Yeah, so you had to die to develop the strategy to improve your gameplay in order to advance to the next level. Exactly, and the movie was originally marketed with the title Live, Die, Repeat. And, of course, Tom Cruise did all of his own stunts in this movie and even uh, went to pre-production two months early to help develop the exoskeleton suits that they used. He didn't want them to be CGI. He wanted them to feel real and look tangible. And they look great because they're not, like, super clean and glossy. They're kind of gritty. They look like they're kind not they're not they're kind of cheaply made just because they have to make enough for all the soldiers. So it's not like a what you would expect, like, something like in The Matrix or an Avatar where they have these like crazy exoskeletons that are like amazing looking. Yeah, well, it seems exactly what it was made for in the story where like you just get invaded by a bunch of aliens and you have to develop some sort of new suit technology for your soldiers to fight. And it's like they, did, they made it on the whim. Yeah, the and the, the exosuits actually weighed between 85 to 100 pounds each. And Emily Blunt, when she put hers on for the first time, started crying because she realized I'm going to have to wear this 85 pound suit for five months. <laughs> <laughs> and so basically the plot of the film is that in, there's an alien invasion on Earth by these aliens called Mimics, and human civilization has to basically fight back and try to stop them. Yeah, most of Europe has been taken by the Mimics, and so after having a, a recent victory in Verdun, 
the entire coalition of human forces is going to invade France to to take control of the war. And it's a gr- this this movie is a great blend on the Groundhog Day concept, which we've seen a, a, several times before. But this is such a unique twist on it because it blended together that concept with war and with sci-fi and alien invasion. And it was such a fresh take on the idea. I loved it. Yeah, because I love Groundhog Day. That movie is hysterical. It's really smart. If you've never seen it, go check it out. Mm. Bill Murray's the goat. But it's very similar. Like you said, you know, the protagonist is forced to relive the same day over and over and over again. And over time, he eventually gets better at it, better at living it. Um, And yeah, despite the movies being completely different sci-fi versus just comedy and drama, Mm. the characters are trapped in that world in that day until they figure out the perfect pattern within the context of their endless days to achieve their goals. And a really new take on the idea of the restarting of a day is that it's not just some weird unexplainable phenomenon. It ends up being discovered that it is the weapon that the mimics use and how they've been able to dominate so many worlds throughout the universe is that this is like a a weapon of theirs that they've been using, which is a great way to look at it. Yeah, eventually uh, Tom Cruise's character Cage gets that weaponized ability. Yeah. And so let's talk about Cage first, played by Tom Cruise, Mm -hmm. who plays Major William Cage, a glorified media liaison for the military. He's never been in battle. And I like this character because Tom always plays like a finished version of some warrior, some secret agent, some super, some hero. Yeah. But Cage starts off as a very weak and cowardly character, and he's told that he has to fight, but he tries to blackmail the general to get out of it, which forces him to be arrested, which then starts this this new storyline for Cage's character. Yeah, it's a it's a Tom Cruise character that we're not used to seeing because he he's not a hero. He doesn't know anything about fighting and warfare. And also, he's so cowardly, all he's interested in is is preserving his own life and trying to save his neck as as many chances as he can. And even and gets to the point where he, he thinks that he's more important than the other soldiers that are there sacrificing their lives for the for the war. He thinks that he's above them and, and shouldn't have to fight because he's so important. And he's just desperate to get out of there. Yeah, and so he eventually gets arrested, demoted back to private, and then he wakes up on a pile of bags on some army base that's about to go into invasion. And this is, he doesn't realize yet, and the audience doesn't realize yet, this is how he wakes up every single day for the rest of the film until he figures out his perfect way to get out of the day. And this is where he interacts with Bill Paxton in one of his late, one of his last roles. And Paxton's so funny in this and charismatic. He's got that Southern drawl. And he's a, he adds a lot of humor to the story, especially... Um, in the early act of the film, which brings us into the into the the vibe of the film. Yeah, so Cage doesn't want to be where he is right now, and he's going through like the rounds with the other troops and gears up in these these crazy cool exoskeleton suits. And this is also where we're introduced to Rita. Yeah, and then they sprinkle in all these little moments and these beats and all these other characters, which at first it seems like nothing special, but since we're gonna relive this day over and over and over again, they become ways in which. Cage learns to manipulate the situations and the characters in different ways to 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 learn new strategies for how to go about the day every time he relives it. Just like Groundhog Day, he's yeah. finishing people's sentences. He knows exactly what people are going to do. He knows exactly the motions they do, what they say, and he everything. Know, he knows everything about them, and it's it, they use it because this movie it's it's heavy on action, but it's also heavy on humor, and it's just a lot of fun. And they have a lot of comedic beats in every scene, which make it real fun to watch. 
And so Rita, played by Emily Blunt, is like the most badass fighter in the army. She has her own training facility. She uses a metal sword instead of guns. It's like a helicopter blade. Yeah, it's pretty badass. And she actually uses that as a way to save ammunition while on the battlefield. Yeah. Which is what it actually correlates back to video games because professional gamers and like really awesome gamers, they'll do the same thing where they'll use some kind of melee weapon melee weapon in order to conserve their ammunition because they're so good they're able to kill a lot of people without an without a gun yeah the melee weapon is beneficial in multiple ways and also it's, it's a good way to ensure that if you're gonna die on the battlefield you'll probably get killed pretty quickly if, if you lose your melee weapon yeah and then she's she's on billboards she's part of the military's marketing campaign as the the angel of her done and she's called full metal bitch so like she's become Probably the most decorated soldier in the entire planet and the most widely known. She's become like a star of the military because she was so successful in the Battle of Verdun. And what happens, we learn throughout the film that Rita actually had the restart power that that Cage now has. And that's why she was... Because the entire world thinks that Rita was like a... Rita found so much success in that battle because of this exosuit. And they begin marketing the exosuits as a way that they can defeat the Mimics. But what happened was during the Battle of Verdun, Rita relived that battle more than 300 times, which is why she was able to to find so much success in that battle. But then she lost the power. Yeah, so that's how she becomes such a great fighter, which obviously Cage will get. Yeah, will become. But let's get into that, into how Cage gets the power. Mm-hmm. And so Cage is forced into this attack and this invasion in France, which is supposed to be a secret sneak attack, even though they're broadcasting on TV. The aliens mm-hmm. obviously shouldn't know that they're coming. Yeah. And despite the fact that landing on the battlefield is basically an absolute massacre. It's like the the storming of Normandy. Yeah, it's like the opening of Saber Prior Ryan, exactly, yeah. except with aliens and, and crazy technology. Mm-hmm. And when you first see the mimics, you think there's no way the humans can beat these things. It's insane the things that they can do. The creature design of the mimics are great, and they're so deadly in the way they move. And their their design is just, it's a great take on aliens. Yeah. I love them. And then um, Cage manages to kill one of the aliens, but it's so funny the way he's trying to progress with his <laughs> exoskeleton suit. He can barely walk. He's terrified. All the other Marines are laughing at him and he, making fun of him. He doesn't even know how to take the safety off his off his weapon. Yeah. and he But just like, I love the shot in, in the ship before they land, and he's just caked in sweat. And you can see the fear in his eyes. And it's something we've never seen from Tom Cruise to to show to bring this cowardly character into a war zone. And then when the the doors open beneath him, he's like, "Oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> he's such a coward!" I love it. Yeah. And so Cage is on the battlefield again. Same thing with the dialogue. And when he's on the beginning of the day, he's learning all the steps that all the other Marines take, the steps of the battle, and everything that happens. And then he eventually kills one of the mimics, kind of by accident, when he mm. figures out how to turn the safety off his his weapon and enable the guns. And then he kills an even bigger mimic, but this is a unique mimic because instead of the smaller yellow glowing ones, this is a blue mimic called an alpha. And the rarity of them is like one in six million, I think they say. Yeah. So it's a very rare alien to see on a battlefield. And he kills it with this with a claymore that fire that explodes in front of you. And when he kills blows up the mimic, the alpha, the alpha's blood pours into Cage's body while he's dying. He's not dead yet. And so before his death, he becomes infused with the new power of the mimics. And so he wakes up and restarts the same day over again. Yeah, and so the Omega, which is the overall controlling brain of the mimics, its ability to reset the day it's, gets transferred into Cage's character. And so this is what restarts the—this is what gives him that power. Yeah, and basically the mimics are kind of like this giant 
being, this one central nervous system that the omega can control all of its other mimics and alphas through this connection and this uh, this restarting of the day is how they, they become so good at warfare. Mm-hmm. And then it's great because when, when, he, when, when the day is restarted for the first time and Cage is slowly learning what's happening, I love that he tries to tell everyone what's happening and then he he the first thing the way that people react to him is they duct tape his mouth shut. Yeah. And this is where the movie it goes from being like kind of terrifying this crazy action and then all of a sudden now it's super fun and it's really funny yeah. and there are all these hilarious v- versions of days that he wakes up and tries to figure out to escape where he's at, try to try and to survive as best as he can. I love I love the deaths in this movie. They're so funny. Like there's the time where he tries to roll under the truck and he gets he gets run over by the truck and and um Bill Pax is like, Oh my lord, what the hell were you thinking? <laughs> and there's the time he tries to save the, the big guy from the plane landing on him and he pushes him out of the way and the plane lands on him instead. Yeah. <laughs> it's really funny. But then eventually after reliving the day so many times he comes to he comes into contact with Rita on the battlefield and she sees that he's become so efficient at killing. He knows where the mimics are going to be and he shoots them without even looking at them. She realizes that now he has the power that she once had and she tells him to find her when he wakes up. Yeah. And so he wakes up and this is when he finally finds Rita during her training where she's doing that crazy two arm yoga pose holding up her entire body which yeah. Emily Blunt can actually do it's a crazy plank I could never yeah. do that but I, know, I think they use wires for the movie because you have to do so many goddamn takes but yeah. she could actually do it in re- at real life at the time because she's in tremendous shape for this movie mm-hmm. and then we learn Rita's story how she did the same thing she had the same power but then she lost it because she was injured in battle and lost blood and passed out before she could kill herself and so we learn that Cage has to die. If he's injured in battle, he has to die. He has to kill himself because if he gets a blood transfusion, he will lose the power to reset the day, and then they're all screwed. Because what's happened is, since the mimics have been able to restart the day over and over again, who knows how many times they restarted the day, that's why they know that the human invasion is coming, and that's why they're prepared for the invasion. And so Cage and Rita pretty much have to use their own weapon against them and figure out how to... um, how to battle against the Mimic's new strategy. And to find the Omega. So yeah. then we learn through the scientists that Rita uh, has been secretly communicating with that they have the theory of the Omega. And Cage also has a vision of the Omega somewhere. And yeah. like this this big um, dam, giant dam in the middle of nowhere. And so also, so Rita's training him and they're also trying to figure out how to get to the Omega. So once they do finally locate them, so, and so the plan changes from once they do finally know where the Omega is, which is in Germany, the new plan is Cage has to find a way to get them off the beach. And then this begins this huge mission where Cage dies over and over and over and over again. And he's struggling to find a way to get him and Rita off this beach because the battle is so massive and so deadly they keep dying over, and it's it gets to the point where Cage becomes he he loses his will, he loses his motivation, and you can see that he's sick of it because he's died so many times, and no matter what he tries, no matter what strategy they do, they keep failing. And then you can see you can see it in his eyes, and he's lost his motivation and, and kind of lost his will to keep going. Yeah, and because also she's training Cage to be like the greatest fire of them all. And so there's a ton of training montages where it's actually kind of funny where he breaks his back and yeah. she keeps having to kill him. And he's like, wait, 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 don't kill me. Yeah. She's like, we're just going to have to start over again. But you can really see that 
Cage is starting to lose hope in the ability to get off the beach. Yeah, like there's that one instance where he doesn't even go to training. He just goes to a bar in the middle of the city. He's just, just sick to have of a beer. He's sick of it. He just wants to be like, he's just like, you know what? I'm not going to do it today. And, but then he goes out onto the bridge and he realizes and sees that the mimics are going to take over all the cities. Yeah. And so that he has to get back to work. Yeah. And this is one of the most complex roles I think Cruz has played in years. Like normally he's just playing great action hero saving the world, which I love. But this is a really complex character because Cage goes through so many transformations as a character. Yeah. And I think Cruz does a phenomenal jo- job with it. And again, Cage is, is sick of everything. He's sick of tr- being trained by Rita for the time being. He just wants to do it all by himself. He's he, also sick of seeing her die because yeah. you can see that he's starting to develop an emotional connection to her. And so he doesn't want to keep watching her die over and over again. Yeah, the problem with Cage is he's he's seeing her every day and spending so much time with her. But every time he meets Rita, she's a, he's a stranger to her. Yeah. And he's getting sick of it because he's developing feelings for her. So he decides to go on this one-man mission to go find the Omega. And so he eventually finds out where his vision was occurring. And learns that it was a trap that the Omega planted for him. He gets there, and they know he has their power. They won't kill him. They're trying to bleed the power out of him. Mm. But eventually, he fortunately escapes the Alpha and the Mimic and and dies and wakes up. Yeah. And so now they realize that they have to figure out where the Omega actually is now. Yeah, And the only way to find that out is to go back to the general and get what's inside of his safe. Yeah, so inside the general safe is like this kind of device that that that, that engineer built which it's an antenna. An antenna which if you if they plug it if they jam it into into cage to connect it with his blood, they'll be able to track down where the omega is. And so he and he and Rita go on this mission which they obviously do hundreds of times because it gets to the point where Cage knows everyone's move in the embassy and where to go. But then up to this point, the stakes of this movie, they're pretty much gone because since Cage can reset the day, when he fails and when he dies, it doesn't really mean anything. Just like when you play a video game, when you fail, yeah, it's annoying, but like you're just going to be able to play again. You restart or respawn where you just were. So the stakes have no meaning. And then since the stakes aren't there anymore, the filmmakers and writers decided on this brilliant take where the best way to continue the story is create the stakes again when Rita and Cage get the antenna they plug it into him and they and then Cage finally sees that the Omega is actually in in France at the Louvre but then they crash their car and they both pass out and then Cage wakes up in a hospital room and his blood has he's gone through a blood transfusion and he's lost the power and so now the stakes are as high as they can be they there were no stakes before because he could keep resetting the day but now it's like you're playing a video game and you can't save it and you can't reset. So there's no way he can fail. Failure means the end of civilization. So now the stakes have risen and the, the story gets vastly more interesting. And this is where Cage and Rita escape. She almost kills him because she's like, all right, we just got to reset the day. Yeah. He's like, no, 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 I got a blood transfusion. Don't kill me. Now Rita and Cage enlist the help of those Marines from his barracks. Mm-hmm. And they somehow, they eventually convince them to go. And basically these dudes are just going to be a bunch of people to die so <laughs> they can get to the Omega. Because now they're going to France to the Louvre, which is a really cool place to put the uh, where mm-hmm. the Omega should be. Oh, yeah. You can really understand, like, the gravity of if they fail, it's over. Yeah, even Rita says to him, like, you can't reset, like, when he's doing something risky that he might die at. Yeah. And so basically, the film ends where they they locate the Omega and and Rita. It's a great great battle sequence, great action sequence, and they they finally get into the Louvre. Yeah, and Rita kind of draws the Omega's um, alphas out so that Cage has a shot at, at destroying the Omega, and mm. he dives headfirst towards their deaths to destroy the Omega 
with a bomb with grenades or something like yeah. that. Again, at this point, Cage has lost his ability to reset the day, but he successfully blows up the Omega, but at the same time, the blood of the Omega goes back inside of him. And then we wake up with Cage again, and he restarts the day, and then it goes to Rita, and he just smiles at her. And also, when the day's restarted, it has this great tight close-up of his face, so it restarts, and we think for a second, oh, no, he's back to where he started again. But then we pull out, and we see that he's actually in the helicopter. So we woke up, and the day was restarted, but he's in a different location, and it's a different time, so things have changed. He has his officer's uniform on. Yeah, and so we learn that in this ver- in this new reality, the humans have discovered that through some kind of en- energetic pulse, all of the mimics have been killed. They don't know why, but obviously Cage knows, and Cage is the only one who, who will ever know. And then, he yeah, he goes to, he finds Rita, and then you think he's going to say something, but then he just like gives that smirk and like a little laugh to himself, and it's a great cut to the end. That Tom Cruise ending. Yeah, that Tom Cruise smile. And I love the ending of this movie because it's like, is he trapped in another loop? And so like if he dies of old age, does he go back and reset to yeah, that like day? Yeah, like if, if he grows old with Rita and then he dies, will he reset and he, he'll be back in the helicopter again? Maybe he's going to live in like this infinite limbo. Well, then he would just have to bleed out and die. And he'll yeah. lose it forever. Yeah, but yeah. It's kind of interesting to think about it because like, it's this new reality and this new reset. So yeah. I bet you he can just live out that life over and over again. There's also this idea that I was thinking about watching this is when Cage resets each day, does that mean he's creating a new alternate reality, a new a, a multiverse? So by resetting each day, you create this multiverse of different realities. And all, and all the other realities where he failed, the humans are killed by the, by, by the, by the mimics. And then all of those individual realities, he's creating new realities. So yeah. it's just an infinite reality. Yeah, so it creates like this whole idea of a multiverse. It's just like Groundhog Day. Yeah. I think that's super interesting and probably plausible. Mm. As good as, as this movie is, it was a huge box office flop. Yeah, I think it only made like 260 or something like that. Yeah, right? worldwide. It just made nothing and they lost money on it. I think they ended up making a little bit back on DVD sales and VOD, but ultimately um, a sequel isn't going to be made and hasn't been made because it failed so bad. I think they, they think it's because of the title. They changed it from Live, Die, Repeat to Edge of Tomorrow. I think mm. Live, Die, Repeat was probably the better title. And even All You Need Is, is Death or All You Need, all you is, need is, kill is Kill is a really cool name too. I think Edge of Tomorrow is probably the wrong title for yeah. it. I don't know, but I mean... I I think the trailer maybe I don't think the marketing I agree that I don't think the marketing did a good job of selling this movie. It's the same thing with the Harley Quinn movie, like the yeah. Emancipation of Harley Quinn. That's just like a a title that a lot of people wouldn't look at and be like, "What is this movie?" You gotta you gotta let your people know what the movie's about. Yeah, Edge of Tomorrow. You see that title, it can be it can be like a crime drama with Mel Gibson. You know, mm. it can be anything. Yeah, but live, die, repeat. That's pretty cool title. Pretty I mean, cool they, sh- they should have kept it like that. It ended up being the tagline. I think they didn't want to have like the word "die" in the title of a movie. But, Maybe, yeah. But I mean, Die Hard's so successful. Yeah. The fun fact about this movie is, so Christopher McQuarrie wrote the script for this, and he ended up working with Tom Cruise on the Mission Impossible movies. But so Christopher Christopher McQuarrie started writing the script four weeks before production started. But then they they had already had a spec script made. They had several drafts made, but then they just erased everything because they weren't happy with any of it, and they pretty much started from scratch wow. four weeks out. And because of this, they ended up filming the movie in mostly chronological order, so that way they could pretty much figure out the ending as they were going along. Mm-hmm. So they were writing as they yeah, went along. Yeah, because I know there was an original spec script, which a writer sold for like a million dollars. Yeah, but that ended up getting trashed. Yeah, but it was also on the blacklist as one of the most favorited uh, unmade movies for a while, too. But yeah, mm-hmm. I guess McCory's like, hey, I can do a good <laughs> idea, but let yeah. me one-up that. Yeah, and there's uh, the scene where 
at where Emily Blunt is driving that van, she, during one of the takes, she actually crashed it into a tree and nearly killed Tom Cruise, who was in the passenger seat. Yeah, but they just laughed it off. Yeah. Because Tom Cruise is great. He he's, never dies. He's basically a stuntman. <laughs> and also, Emily Blunt got pregnant during production of this movie, and she couldn't, she didn't shoot a bunch of her stunt reshoots. And uh, it was a very well-kept secret that only a very few people knew mm. about her pregnancy from John Krasinski because, you know, Jim's got to get that in. <laughs> I think that an- another reason why the movie maybe didn't didn't do as well in the box office is because I think a lot of people still feel this way, but I, st- I think that at this time, a lot of the public opinion towards Tom Cruise was very negative. And I think he still deals with this very much. Because, yes, he's a Scientologist, he's done some wild things on camera in the past, but I think that people have this, when they hear Tom Cruise, I, I when I talk to people about Tom Cruise, oftentimes like, oh, he's crazy, oh, he's a Scientologist, but I just feel like it doesn't really matter, you know what I mean? He just makes movies, and if you like the movies, you like them, you, don't, you shouldn't judge the person before you go to, to decide whether you, whether you enjoy the art that they help make. Yeah, he has questionable actions in his personal life, for sure, with his family and everything, and kind of like abandoning his daughter and then following the Scientology religion. But, yeah. you know, that's that's his personal choice in his personal life. I like to take the, the personal life out of movies, mostly. Yeah. Um, especially when, like, people aren't getting hurt, so everything's... It's okay. It's just his it's choice. He financially supports his family and everything, but... He's just a big action movie star, and that's what I, I... I like Tom Cruise, and I want to watch Tom Cruise movies. And I, and again, in terms of success, I think this was, like, the first movie of his in, like, over a decade that was in the Mission Impossible franchise to gross $100 million. Yeah. So, like, he was having a lot of box office bombs domestically with non-Mission Impossible films. Yeah. And this, even though it was kind of a bomb, still made a lot of money. And a lot of people ended up loving the film. Cult, it became a cult movie. Yeah, so Edge of Tomorrow, it's a really, really great movie. It's a perfect blockbuster summer movie. Yeah. Awesome sci-fi. It's original as hell. It's a blast. It really is. It's a lot of fun, and that's why it's on this list, because it's not as thought-provoking or in, intense or or high in theory as the other films on this list but for me i feel like this is a great action sci-fi adventure that's a lot of fun and i enjoy it every time i see it let's move on to the final film of the episode blade runner 2049 hell yes directed by denis villeneuve in 2017 wow i can't believe this movie came out three years ago holy crap Mm. um (laughs) It's an amazing film. Some similarities between this film and Ex Machina. It's about Officer K, played by Ryan Gosling, a new Blade Runner for the Los Angeles Police Department, unearths a long-buried secret that has the potential to plunge what's left of society into chaos. His discovery leads him on a quest to find Rick Deckard, played by Harrison Ford from the original Blade Runner, a former Blade Runner who's been missing for 30 years. This film is hands down... One of the greatest sequels, if not the greatest sequel ever made. And I think it's an absolute masterpiece of the last 20 years. And it is now, I consider it one of my favorite movies ever. Because it's so well made. It's The script and the story are absolutely phenomenal. It's such a great story. And I don't know how, when they first announced the sequel, I don't know how they are going to top the original Blade Runner, which is one of my favorite movies. But in many ways, they did top Blade Runner and improved upon it. And actually created a more humanist, a more human, personal, emotional story in this film. Yeah, and in terms of like echelon of sequels, it's like this 
The Godfather Part Two and The Dark Knight. That's, that's like about it. That's all I can think it. of on the spot in terms of a sequel of a move of a masterpiece that's equal to or better than. And this is debatable if it's better or not. But also, Dark Knight you can't throw in because Batman Begins isn't a masterpiece. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. So I'll you can't you that. throw that in because okay. the fact that it was a sequel to a masterpiece is the the requirement and it surpassed it in many ways. Okay, Godfather Part Two. How about that? Yeah, there All right, we so go. That's yeah. an equivalent comparison. That's, it. that's a that's about it. And what's really great about this film is in the marketing and the trailers, you don't really know much of who K is. You you know he's a Blade Runner, obviously, but as you find out in the film very early on, he's actually a replicant himself. I walked into this movie thinking that he was a human who was a Blade Runner who hunts down replicants, but it was a fascinating take on a Blade Runner that that now Blade Runners. Are replicants that are created to hunt down old Blade Runner to hunt down old replicants. Yeah, and so if you haven't seen the original Blade Runner, real quick, it's about um, these Blade Runners who is played by Harrison Ford, the main Blade Runner, who hunt down replicants. Who in that world are these humanoid um, robotic androids. beings, androids? Um, and Blade Runners are used to hunt them down and kill them and terminate them because they've lived past their cycle or they're living rogue. And watch the original if you haven't before you start this if you want and before you watch Blade Runner 2049, obviously. And that movie changed the sci-fi genre forever. It was made by Ridley Scott in 1982. And the film ends with Harrison Ford's character, Deckard, um, a human Blade Runner who refuses to terminate Rachel, who's a replicant, because he has fallen for her and it ends with them running off together. Exactly. And then just like the original Blade Runner, one of the main themes is the question of humanity because it comes into question the fact that Deckard could actually be a replicant himself. And there are actually several nods to this. Um, I w- want to get into it real quick because it's a lot of fun. About the original? Oh, yeah, about the original, just about Deckard. Go for it. It's a theory that Deckard the entire time was a replicant, and Ridley Scott actually assert- ascertains this theory saying that he did it on purpose, and he- Ridley Scott believes that Deckard is a replicant because... Um, just like the replicants in the film, sometimes there's like a little glowing light in their eyes. Deckard has that glowing light in his eyes in several scenes in the film. And also, his partner makes the origami unicorn at the end of the film and leaves it out for him. And now the unicorn is a memory in Deckard's mind he dreams about often, but he doesn't tell anyone about the unicorn. And so the fact that his partner knows about the unicorn and makes the origami unicorn makes it begs the question that his partner read his case file and knows that he's a replicant and knows what memories were implanted into Deckard's mind. And the origami unicorn is a, a representation in 2049 is the wooden horse. Yeah, exactly. Which is basically the same kind of thing, but we'll get into that a little later on, yeah. and it's a symbol about humanity. And so this film, its main theme is, what does it mean to be human? And what is humanity? What is the soul? And... This film explores those themes in a high-budget action sci-fi drama in such a brilliant way, and I love it. And this is a very artistic movie. It's very underappreciated, in my opinion. Brilliant directors for both films in just similarities. It's Ridley Scott and Denis. Um, but Blade Runner 2049 is probably the most visually stunning film I've seen in the last 10 years. Hmm. It's groundbreaking cinematography. The The film is probably Roger Deakins's Deacon's finest work as a cinematographer. He won the Oscar for this film. I think he won back-to-back years. Yeah, this is one of them. Um, this film, just like the original, has the right leading man with Ryan Gosling as K. Plus, he kind of looks like Harrison Ford, which kind of comes later on into the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the symbolism between the origami unicorn and the wooden horse are just a few similarities between the two, the original and the, re- and the sequel. Yeah, Roger Deakins has always been 
arguably the best cinematographer of all time. But to see him finally work inside the realm of a large-budget, huge-scale science fiction film, you got to see the true genius of his artistry and being able to build and light these sets in such amazing, unique, and fresh ways. And I've never seen cinematography like this before. Like, for example, the Las Vegas scenes where where Kay is walking through the desert of Las Vegas and it's it's all red and orange and very dusty. He actually was inspired by a dust storm that happened in Sydney, Australia several years ago where Sydney actually looked just like Las Vegas in this film where it was just the air was filled with dust and then the 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 sun the the, the sun's warm rays created this orange glow across the entire city. And so he used that as inspiration. And the reason why this film looks so good is they built all these sets. So they built the Las Vegas set. They built Wallace's building set, the, the Wallace Tower. They built miniatures of Los Angeles. So when Kay's flying to Los Angeles, that's an actual physical set that they built with Just miniatures. Like the original Blade Runner. Exactly. They built that big trash city. And then they built all of Wallace's set, like that huge room with the water, the pool of water around, and then the, the, the light reflected off the water on the walls. Everything in this film is tangible and real, and that's why it looks so good. And Deacons lit them all in brilliant ways. And many times with reboots or like long-awaited sequels, filmmakers will you know simply just remix the same characters. They're they're safe additions to the franchise. Um, but Denis was incredibly ambitious with this film and took it to unique levels of filmmaking. And it's one of again one of those rare masterpiece sequels in. It's still too soon to tell if it's better than the original. I think it just needs more time to like sit and be rewatched over and over again and analyzed. But again, it's very underappreciated. It didn't even make a hundred million domestically in the United States. Yeah, this which was is insane. Just like Edge of Tomorrow, this was a bomb, and I think it's because of the marketing. They they hit a lot of what the story was in, in the marketing and the trailers, and also, I think people were just so interested in just watching mindless action and superheroes that something like this which is thought provoking and deep um people are less likely likely to find an in- interest in watching that yeah we love the mcu but yeah. there are a lot of great movies out there that aren't getting seen because they're just we're so um, diluted with marvel and superheroes right now yeah and then this movie has so many important themes i think one of the biggest themes in the in the film is the loss of humanity within the humans because k is actually like the most human character in the entire movie, even though he's an, even though he's an android. And the reason for that is because in this world of, of the Blade Runner world, nature has been destroyed. There are no trees anywhere. Wood is actually the most valuable mineral in the on the entire planet. If you have a piece of wood, like he even when he gets his little wooden horse inspected, the guy tells him like he could like buy anything with this little bit of wood. And so there's there's no there are no trees. There's no kind of nature left in the world except for water and, and earth. It's just water and stone. There's rain and there's rock and, and steel and plastic. And so humanity has lost its connection to nature. And in, in doing so and in embracing artificiality, humanity has lost its soul. And so this film is set in a world where humans, they, they've lost their meaning in life. They've disconnected from the earth. Yeah, and ironically, many of the human characters in this film are essentially powerless to the story and the mm. plot and the action. You know, the replicants do all the work in this movie. Yeah. They do all the actions. They perform all the tasks. Like, Joshi, played by Robin Wright, the commanding officer of K, just gives orders that K fulfills. Wallace gives orders. And she seems more heartless than an android. 
Wallace gives orders which Love carries out. Even Deckard is powerless. He is mainly used for exposition. He can't really fight anymore. He can't stop Wallace. So basically the replicants have kind of replaced the humans already. Mm-hmm. It's been decades since the story of the original. And Kay is a new Blade Runner and an officer who's, again, designed to track down rogue replicants who are living longer than their previously programmed lifetime cycles. And um, per- I personally believe this is probably Ryan Gosling's best performance. And I think he was perfect for the role. He's like that ideal actor for, you know, hiding vulnerabilities under the, just like this handsome facade or this handsome sh- shell. And his ability to, stro- to show the struggle with his non-human entity dealing with emotions dealing with am i alive do i have a soul do i exist i think it was super smart to make the new blade runner with a fresh face a fresh idea rather than continuing with deckard's storyline and just going back to deckard's the lead character in the film now they have a new blade runner and a new story and a new plot and i think that was the best way to do it rather than doing something off of Deckard or even just remaking it in general. Yeah, it was great to make Kay a replicant because eventually what happens with his storyline and his arc is that he ends up believing that he could be the child of Rachel and Deckard, which would means that which would mean that he would have humanity, he would have a soul and he wouldn't just be a robot because that's his biggest struggle internally is the idea that he, that even though he, he exists, he, he doesn't have a soul. And he even admits it in public. And even though he's a replicant, there's still like, you can see that there's a reluctance to him. He doesn't enjoy what he's doing. And he fe- it, it seems like there, he's, he's struggling already at the beginning of the film internally with what he is in, in the world around him. And so that, that struggle gets compounded when he comes to the, the idea that he could be part human. And this is the struggle of, of him as as of him trying to understand if if he has a soul and if he has humanity inside of him. Yeah, we'll get to that in a little bit. And so the film opens up where you don't really know if Gosling's a replicant or human. You kind of just think he's a Blade Runner like Harrison Ford was. Yeah. But then you eventually find out that the whole time he's a replicant, and you you find out pretty early on in the film when he goes to investigate uh, Dave Bautista's character Sapper, who has a great small role in this film. And so at Sapper's house, he's just a replicant who's just living as a protein farmer. And Kay is ordered to terminate him or bring him in. And this is also, this is where we learn that Kay is a replicant and that he's a more advanced replicant, a Nexus 9, compared to Sapper. And he terminates Sapper, but not without Sapper getting in some important dialogue talking about how he's never seen a miracle, so he doesn't understand what it means to, to be alive. And, or what does he say? Yeah, you've never seen a miracle. Yeah. This miracle that Sapper is talking about leads us to the main villain of the film, Wallace. And now Wallace has taken over the production of Replicants. And his main goal is to create the ability for Replicants to reproduce. Because it, he, it happened with Rachel, and he doesn't understand how it happened. Because for Wallace's... He, he can make millions of replicants, but he wants to make billions of replicants, and the only way that will be possible is if they're able to reproduce on their own. And so Wallace is trying to crack the code between trying to make fertile replicants that can reproduce. 
Yeah, and it's played by Jared Leto, and this is a great performance by him. And he, he's just like this airy figure. He's blind, but he has these odd-looking eyes. Um, Wallace is head of Wallace Corporation, which is now a replicant manufacturer, like you said. And he's pushing boundaries of replicants, and he created the Nexus 9, which is a far superior replicant in terms of strength, intelligence, and loyalty. The loyalty of a Nexus 9, like his his love replicant, is her loyalty is undeniable. And, yeah, like they don't go rogue like yeah, the old ones did. Yeah. And Wallace is an interesting villain because he sort of saved humanity before purchasing the Tyrell Corporation because before he was in genetically modifying food, which helped save humanity. So he, he ends up from wanting to save humanity to wanting to now, he wants to colonize interstellar. He wants to interstellarly colonize the galaxy with replicants. And so, like you said, his main goal is to create replicants that can procreate. And he, all, he has this incredible intelligence and also this like eerie calmness to his character. He's like an evil Zen yoga master or something. It's like that weird oh, <laughs> well, music in the background. Jared Leto based his character on Silicon Valley tech investors that he knew in real life. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised, man. But also, he, he took it to the next level with the blindness where on set, Jared Leto actually wore blinding contacts so that he couldn't actually see at all when he was on set. And so he said that even though he shared scenes with Harrison Ford, he never actually saw Harrison Ford in person because he was blind the whole time. And so basically Wallace's new motivation in the film, besides creating a procreation, is once he also learns of the childbirth, he sets love out to follow Kay on his mission of finding the child and terminating it because he wants to learn the secret of how a replicant gave birth and procreated. Mm. And we're also introduced to Joy, who is played by Anna DeArmas. Your girlfriend? Yeah, <laughs> Ben's girlfriend. And uh, Joy is basically a computer program, artificial intelligence, and also Kay's girlfriend. And they have a very complicated relationship in the film because both of these characters are programmed beings. They're artificial intelligences, but they also both develop feelings for each other and they both seem to be in love with each other i'm not sure that joy is ever in love with him i think that joy is a program that's designed to make the user feel loved to tell them what they want to hear and to do what they want to see and so i think for k joy represents his desire for connection because as we learn from the uh the end from the replicant prostitutes He's not, he's not interested in, in having physical sex with anyone. He wants that emotional connection, which is why he prefers joy. Because there's no physical connection. It's all emotional and personal. And so this shows the internal struggle of him actually kind of having a, a kind of real consciousness and a real kind of soul and heart to him. And yes, they have the special bond. But, but I think that joy ultimately, yes, she says she loves him. But I think that's just the programming. And we find out later on in the film... That, that he ends up believing that as well. I think they do generally have developed real feelings for yep. each other. I mean, Kay is absolutely crushed when Jay is eventually terminated uh, when she's in the em- Eminator. Agreed. And, um, which ends her existence forever. It devastates him. And But Joy's personality develops over time once she becomes portable with the Eminator. And... Once she's portable with Kay, you get to really see a new side of her. And I think she's also starting to develop a soul and, and questioning her humanity at the same time that Kay is questioning his humanity and questioning his soul. And also, right before she gets destroyed, she tells 
Cade that she loves him. And yes, it can be from what you said that she's just a program designed to make you feel loved, but also she didn't have to say that right before her death. And so right before her death, the one thing she wanted to do was tell Kay that she loved him. And so upon his investigation at Sapper's tree, this is a striking point for Kay because he finds on the root of the tree the date. And the date he finds on this is a, is a birth date, and it correlates exactly to a memory of his. He has this implanted memory of when he's a child in an orphanage, and he has a, a wooden horse for a toy, and on the feet of the horse are inscribed this exact same date. And so this is an odd thing to him because why would the date from this memory of his horse be graved onto Sapper's tree? And so this date leads him to look up DNA databases to find um, processed children of that date. And he's also using Joy as his sidekick to figure all this out. And in his investigation of this, he finds that there are two children born on that day and processed at a specific orphanage. And one, I think, died Mm -hmm. and one is still alive but missing. And so this also starts to question, and Joy's kind of egging him on, that maybe he could possibly be this missing child. Maybe he could be the replicant that was born from a human and replicant. And so now he's actually beginning to question who he really is because if that's true, then that means his memories are real. And if his memories are real, that means he's a real human. And this is just like Rachel in the original Blade Runner. So in the original Blade Runner, Rachel doesn't know that she's a replicant yet. But throughout the investigation, and then eventually she's told that she's a replicant because she has planted memory, so she doesn't think she's, she's she thinks she's a real human being. Mm. And then the shock on her face and her reaction to to learn that she's not human, it's it's reverse of K, where K knows he's a replicant, but now he's starting to question: Am I actually? Do I have existence? Do I have a soul? Yeah. Am I human? And so now his mission, even though he's been assigned this mission to find this child and kill it. Now he believes that he's the child, so now his new mission is to find Deckard to get answers. Because he thinks that he's Deckard and Rachel's child. And so Kay travels to the orphanage to try to get answers, and this is where he eventually finds the wooden horse from his memory. And so this is probably the most important part of the film, because when when he finds the horse, and it's in the same orphanage, and it's in the same exact spot where in his memory he hid the horse... So this brings him to realize that this is actually real. These are real memories, so that means I'm real. So Joy is convinced that he's the child, but Kay still wants more answers. So he goes to this doctor who creates the memories for replicants, and this is this is a woman named Anna. And she, he gives her his memories, and he wants to know if they're real or if they've just been implanted inside of his head or if they're fake. And she confirms with... Kay that they're real memories but Anna is this odd character because she's just secluded in this room she's behind glass she's by herself she has a a disorder where she her body never developed an immune system so she has to stay in a bubble environment but she tells Kay that the memories are real yeah but obviously Anna plays a more integral part of the film later on Mm -hmm. having this confirmation that his memories are real really adds to the to the conflict within his mind of He's led this life, this entire life, where he's been told that he's a replicant, he's a robot, he has no soul, he's, he's, he's just a, a piece of manufactured metal and parts. And so to come to this realization that he's, he's actually part human and he actually has a soul, it crushes him and he lashes out. And he, then, has, he has this great emotional moment where Ryan Gosling just throws the chair and screams. Yeah. And so he thinks he's human and he believes it. And yeah. now this is the point where he gets arrested by the LAPD he fails his his test and like these 
the replicants have to take this interesting baseline test where it's an examination to, designed to measure an emotional deviance by the Nexus 9 replicants. And he does it in the beginning of the film when he comes back from Sapper's Tree and he, he passes it with flying colors. But it's like this, there are these very intense scenes of dialogue and responses in like this claustrophobic setting. Gosling actually wrote most of it. Yeah, and uh, I think the original script, they, they were going to have just the replicant recite a poem. But he, he wanted to use a method in acting classes that he learned where you give responses to specific um, readings uh, quickly. And so he fails this baseline test. And then, and then Joshi forces him to give his badge and gun and tells him he has 48 hours to get back on track or else he'll be terminated. And so he lies to Joshi and tells her that he found the child and killed it and the job's done. And so she, she helps him, she allows him to get out of the police precinct. And then this sets him on his journey to find Deckard and he travels to Las Vegas. And this is where we see this amazing set, this environment where Vegas is, is abandoned, completely abandoned. It's a toxic environment with radiation, so no one lives there anymore. And like we said, with Deacons and his production and cinematography, they created this amazing environment where everything's just, the, the air is filled with dust and has this orange warm light from the sun. And so it seems like it's an, it's an unlivable space. Yeah, he enters that Las Vegas hotel, which is a vintage hotel. And I think the color schemes of this movie represent Kay's... Uh, belief in his humanity where the film opens up in like this dark pale white landscape there's nothing alive it's just it's just like gray which is kind of symbolic of he just is a machine he does what he's told he operates he terminates blade run he terminates replicants and now when he believes he's human now or he believes he has a soul and has real existence there's this the this multiple scenes of this orange hue everywhere, and now he's he believes he has a soul. And now the colors are warm and everything for now. And this is again where he he tracks down Deckard and finds Deckard. And then him and Deckard have this amazing interaction, and then they have this great little fight scene where uh, Deckard's trying to kill Kay, and then they have that fight in the uh, in the theater, and then there's this there's this the moment where. Kay just stops fighting him and just allows Deckard to just like keep hitting him because like he's not gonna kill him no matter how many times he punches him he's just letting Deckard tire himself out and then there's actually a moment where during set Harrison Ford actually landed a, a hard blow on in, into uh, Gosling's face really punched him in the face real hard and there's a there's a, a freeze frame of Gosling's reaction to the punch. He's got like this, like, oh shit. And then, <laughs> and then Harrison Ford's like, oh no, he's got like this, oh no face. And it's a real, and apparently it, it was, it bruised up Gosling. Cause I mean, Harrison Ford's a man, man, a man's man. Strong he's guy. A strong guy. Even though he's a hundred. Yeah. And so after the, after the, they were done shooting that day, he invited Gosling to his trailer and they both drank scotch and, and hanged out that night. That must've been a fun night. Yeah. Just the two of them hanging out, drinking scotch in your trailer. Yeah. Pretty cool. <laughs> And so Deckard, after being questioned, he reveals that the child was left at the orphanage on purpose to protect it. He didn't want to raise the child because it would have be, obviously become be, been hunted. Yeah, so in order to protect his child who, that he had with Rachel, he, he abandoned them and, and took off in, in order to prevent them getting tracked down by authorities. And now they get ambushed by Love and Wallace's guards and, and soldiers. And this is where that emotional moment where... Where Kay's been carrying around the emanator, which makes Joy portable and means he can take her anywhere. And this is where love breaks the emanator. And it's a really emotional scene for Kay because he just lost 
really the one thing that he loves and one of the things that he thought made him human was love and emotion yeah the only emotional connection to anything he's ever had and so it was devastating to him and then uh love takes off with deckard um because love and love and wallace think that deckard can lead them to the child so that's why they capture deckard and they leave cave to die and let's talk about love for a second because I think she's a fascinating character because, yes, she's a replicant, but we also see through her actions that she also has this she has this kind of soul to her. You can tell from her, her reactions to things and her, and her interactions with people because – and she hides it. Like she, We see that – we think that replicants can't lie, but she can lie. So, for example, when she kills um, Lieutenant Joshi, she tells her that she's going to tell Wallace that Joshi fired on her first. So – she, we can tell that she lies to Wallace, so she has this interior self that she keeps hidden from everyone else, and she and she seems to enjoy killing people. She she kills that technician at the police precinct for no reason. She didn't have to kill him, and she so she, I think that love actually has emotional capability and an inner self. And contrasting from Kay, I think that she despises humans because they have humanity and she apparently doesn't. And so I think that's why she, she enjoys killing them and why she's so so happy to, to, to be aggressive and, and to lash out. And I agree. I think all the beings in, these mov- in this movie have souls. I think the replicants have souls. I, I've already said I think Joy develops her soul. Obviously, the humans have their souls. And I think it's evident because when you just said that Wallace captures Deckard, and now he's just trying to get information out of Deckard, mm-hmm. and he doesn't want to kill him right away, so he's just trying to be nice to him. So he offers Deckard an exact copy replicant of Rachel from yeah. her youth in exchange for information where the, the child is. Mm. And Deckard rejects this copy. And, I mean, you would think that, like, obviously it's a perfect copy. Why, why would you reject it if it was just not human at all? But obviously you can tell that it's a different soul. Yeah. It has a different being inside of the replicant. Mm. And I think it shows that these replicants do have souls. Everyone has a soul in this movie. Yeah. And, and he's like... Her eyes were green. <laughs> and then immediately, Wallace just kills it and terminates it. So yeah. Wallace just shows that he, again, like an ex machina with Nathan, has this godlike complex, this godlike personality where he creates and ends life at will whenever he wants. They're just ants on an ant farm to him. But essentially, the copy of Rachel had a different soul than the original Rachel. Yeah, that's a good point. And then meanwhile, Kay has been rescued by this rebel force of replicants who have all been living underground and they've been plan we learn that they've been planning this rebellion that they're preparing for Kay's journey comes to a crashing emotional halt because he he learns that the child of Rachel and Deckard was a girl not a boy and so the path that he's been on and the uh, the belief that he could be a real person has just been shot down. His humanity is taken away from him because he now understands that he wasn't the child, so that means he's not part human. And so it crushes him and devastates him. Yeah, the leader says this amazing line to him. It says, Dying for the right cause is the most human thing we can do, which obviously Kay takes to heart. Yeah. And the thing with Kay is, I think I said it earlier, where 
for him, existence in humanity means you're born. That's what separates him from humans. He thinks that in order to have a soul, you have to be born. That's why he was so obsessed with the idea that he was born from a from a person, from a replicant. Yeah. And he thinks that existence comes from that rather than being born or made inside of a plastic bag inside of a laboratory. But little does he know that really, in my opinion, he has a soul himself, which he has developed. And I also think that his actions show that he has humanity to him because he chooses to save Deckard. Exactly, which is playing off what the leader just told him. Yeah. And so he chooses the route of being as human as possible. And also, I think the most telling sign is that he wanted to be human, and that desire to have humanity and that desire to have a soul shows that he actually does have a soul The because if you want this, then that means you, you can't be a mindless robot if you want to be a human. So he must have humanity inside of him, and he always has. And so basically what happens next is Wallace is taking Deckard, well, Love is taking Deckard somewhere. Off planet. Off planet to get the, to extract the information out of him with who knows what ways. And um, this is when, in order to gain his humanity, K decides to save Deckard. And this is this great action scene where he shoots down two of the ships, and then him and, him and Love have a battle scene where K sustains a very fatal wound yeah but he eventually he kills love and saves deckard and then by saving deckard's life he fakes his death so that deckard on record is dead and that's what he says uh you'll you'll you were dead you died in the crash yeah and then what he next what he does next is he understands who anna is and anna is really the child anna is the child of deckard and rachel and now this is why she lives in a bubble, and that's why she has an immune disorder, because she's part human and part replicant, so she her body never developed an immune system. And so Kay does the most human thing he can do. He saves Deckard's life. Then he brings Deckard to his daughter to be uh, reunited with her. Yeah. And then, would, yeah. And then um, Kay, similar to the ending of Blade Runner, where the final replicant dies in tears and rain, Kay dies on the steps outside of the building with snowflakes pouring on top of them. And part of, part, I think it could be argued that the reason why Kay develops his humanity in a soul is because Anna gave him her real life memories. Cause her job in the society is creating memories artificially, but the, the memory of the horse is actually Anna's memory from when she was in the orphanage. That was her horse. And it was the most important memory in her life. And so she gave that memory to this replicant, Kay, because she thinks that if you have more, if you have a realistic memory, that will create more human responses and feelings. So in a way, I think that Anna helped create Kay's humanity and Kay's soul. Because if you have human memories that are real memories, then that means you're human, don't you think? Because the memories are an integral part of who we are in our soul and our mind. Again, and that's why I think Joy develops a soul too because she's creating memories and she's developing memory bank and developing a soul as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. One of the best parts of this film, which was something that the filmmakers had to get right, besides the actors, besides the writing, was the score. And now it was oh, originally yeah. um, Johan Johansson was the original composer on the film who did Arrival, and uh, I think he passed away recently. Yeah. Um, and then Benjamin Wallfish was hired as to help as well, and I think he did the Annabelle movies. Mm-hmm. And he does a lot of horror movies, yeah. And then uh, they were doing the score, but 
Hans Zimmer had to come in to help finish it up. And I don't blame Denis having the heavy hitter Hans Zimmer coming coming in to help out because the, the music for Blade Runner, the sequel, is so complex because they have to match the feeling that Vangelis' score for the original made because it's so unique and mm-hmm. they had to find that same voice for the sequel that was a groundbreaking breaking score when it came out and there's i haven't heard a score that's even similar to it at all yeah and and i think hans and the, and the trio of these composers really did a great job finding that voice as well as putting a new twist on it and it sounds just like a, it could be a sequel just uh musically from the original and then and then back to the horse the wooden horse is the symbol for humanity, but not Kay's humanity. The symbol is of the horse is Anna's humanity. And again, basically, it's a callback to the origami unicorn from the original. There's even a shot of the horse when Mackenzie Davis is looking through Kay's, uh, Kay's room when he's in the shower, and she sees the horse on the bedside table. The way they shot it with the light reflecting from the window, the shadow the horse produces upon the table looks just like a unicorn pretty cool which adds back to the original Blade Runner really cool fact about this movie the opening scene with Sapper it's actually nearly identical to it was going to be the original scene in the first Blade Runner film that was going to be Harrison Ford's character Deckard's introduction to Blade Runner but then really Scott cut it they even got to the storyboard phase of pre-production but really Scott cut it and instead opted to make the first scene with uh, Deckard to be him eating no- noodles in the city. Two noodles. Two noodles. Two noodles. Two. Two. And also, in uh, the pre-production of this film, the studio originally approached Christopher Nolan to direct the film, but Nolan turned it down feeling that he he didn't want to mess it up. Yeah, I think Blade Runner is his favorite movie of all time, yeah. and he said he's watched it like a thousand times. Yeah. So I wouldn't... I, like, Denis is a genius in... To take on the task of making a sequel to Blade Runner, that yeah. takes some fucking balls, man. I think it really only worked because of the combination of Denis and Roger Deakins. Yeah. I really think that's why we had this lightning strike of a masterpiece. And then um, also, the actors of the, in the film, the actors in the film were not given written versions of the ending. In order to prevent leaks from getting out, the producers and filmmakers verbally told the actors what the ending of the film was. So the secrecy and privacy of this film was as high as it could be. It was mm-hmm. pretty much on lockdown. And there's another interesting thing. The, the scene in the movie that, that I, I like is uh, where Joy hires that uh, sex worker to come and help her give Kay a physical experience with mm. her yeah. and make love with Kay. And this this blending of like AI with actual physical beings... It's kind of like our day-to-day reality right now with our relationships and our desires and and we kind of live like on that on that line of reality and artificial intelligence and computers and technology and we're getting more and more embedded with technology. I mean, we're basically cyborgs walking around right now and you know, VR is going to be a bigger part of our life and augmented reality is going to be a bigger part of our life going down the line. So it's interesting to see possible uh things that can happen in the future. I have a fun fact about the first Blade Runner that I love is uh, at the end of Blade Runner when when Deckard and Rachel escape and they're about to go they go on the run the film ends with uh, these landscape shots of nature pretty much showing that they've escaped and they're they're on the run now for the rest of their lives. 
these shots are actually aerial footage shots that Stanley Kubrick got for The Shining, for The Shining's opening scene with the helicopter shots going through the landscapes. That's actually the footage used at the end of Blade Runner because Ridley Scott needed footage for that for that part of the film, but he didn't have any, and they didn't have any money to, to film it. So he just called up Kubrick and was like, do you have any footage I can use for this scene? And then Kubrick just gave him the fo- the, sh- the footage from The Shining. I gotta check that out. It's, cr- I, I it's fascinating. That. If so, if you watch the end of the director's cut of Blade Runner, it's the same footage from The Shining. Really, the exact same. Footage? Not the exact same moments, but it's like the different the, parts of the, the footage filming. that Kubrick didn't use for yeah. the film. That's so cool. It's really fascinating. So, what do you think? Do you think Deckard is a replicant or is he human? Because because Wallace brings it up in their meeting. I think Deckard's human. That's yeah. just the way I think. I think for me, if it's true or not, I know that all the theories out there. For me, visually, as an audience member, a fan of the movies, I like to think he's human because it just brings a different element for me yeah. as a fan. I think. I mean, honestly, I I can't help but think that he's a replicant who's found humanity within himself. Could be. Yeah. Could be. He just seems too human. <laughs> like Harrison's like too human, especially in twenty forty nine. He's so good in this movie. He. This is one of my favorite. He's. Incredible in this, his great yeah. performance. You don't even see him until an hour and a half in the movie, too. Yeah. But yeah, I think Decker's a human. I could be wrong. Who knows who's right and wrong? I mean, I don't think anyone's given an exact answer in terms of like Ridley Scott or anyone. I'm, I'm obviously I also think if Ridley Scott says it, then that's it. But I mean, he he hints at it. he doesn't say it definitely, right? He says it definitely. Oh, he does say it definitely. Yeah, I, I like to think he's a real, real human, a real human being. Yeah. Just for me, even if I'm wrong, just the way I am. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> but over overall, this is. Hands down, one of my favorite movies. I think it's a science fiction masterpiece. And I think it'll stand the test of time and become a a cult classic. And ironically, the same thing happened with the first Blade Runner. It came out, made no money. It was a box office flop. Big failure. But then over time, it turned into a classic and ended up being revered by filmmakers and film lovers. And so I think the same thing is happening with this movie where it came out, made no money. No one went out to see it. And yet... People are finding the movie and loving the movie the same way they did the first one. Yeah, and also with Denis' career and the, the films he'll make, people will be like, oh, I got to go see what else he's done because, you know, a lot of people don't know him by name. Yeah. I don't think, like, in terms of, like, average American household or yeah. global household. So, like, once he makes Dune and people are like, what else? oh, he made Blade Runner? Let me check out Blade Runner. So yeah. it's going to be one of those things where over time, like I said earlier, give it some time to be analyzed. People do videos about it, stories about it, write books about it, just like the original Blade Runner. And then over time, maybe in 30 years, people will be like, one of the greatest movies ever made. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. But it's a very dense movie. It's brilliant and engaging, and I love it wholeheartedly. And if you haven't seen it, you should definitely check it out. Yeah. And that wraps episode 22 of the Raiders of Lost podcast. Ex Machina, Edge of Tomorrow, and Blade Runner 2049. Modern sci-fi masterpieces. Thank you so much for tuning in. Our next episode will be dropping in a couple of days, so definitely stay tuned for that. It's going to be a good one. We're going to do more of these like modern sci-fi versions, so we want to do like another one on Annihilation. and We want to do Interstellar, space movies. Yeah, so we got some more sci-fi ideas. I know sci-fi is a big draw for people. Same yeah. with us, so and we'll get we some more done. We love sci-fi, so... Um, stay tuned for I think we're gonna do uh, car or racing movies next, which will be like Fast and Furious, Gone in sixty seconds, Baby Driver, stuff like that. Drive, drive. Want to go for a ride? So Gosling back to back episodes. So get excited <laughs> about that. Again, subscribe to the channel. Follow us on on Instagram, TikTok, Raise Lost Podcast. Uh, subscribe to the to the audio format so you know when we're dropping new episodes. Hit that subscribe button on YouTube. Hit that notification button. S- support us on Patreon if you want to help us out and buy some new material for the set. We would love it. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in, everybody. Take care, everyone.